When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thinking Basketball Podcast. My name is Ben. Ooh, today it is a special episode. I've wanted to do this for a while. It is the first ever installment of what I'm just calling the Great Debate Series. And this is a series of podcasts debating and comparing great players in NBA history. Today's first ever Great Debates episode is about the shooting guards, specifically a topical shooting guard, Mr. James Harden, and we're going to look at him next to some of the other great shooting guards of all time, like Kobe Bryant, like Dwayne Wade. We won't touch Michael Jordan here uh, because, to me, he's just in a different stratosphere. It would be a landslide, so there's not really much purpose there. But on this next sort of level of shooting guards, there's a lot of meat to rip into, and that's what we'll do. The purpose of this series is to really think about the big ideas worth discussing uh, for these players. You know, what are the key points to know about their careers? What are the theoretical implications of the way they played? What are things to know about the circumstances around when they played, what teams they played for, who they played with? Those are, that's, that's really the goal for each player. And then, of course, understanding how that translates into playoff performance in different contexts. We'll talk about scaling or portability, how well your game travels and fits. That's the old classic term, just fit. But really, we only care about fit on high-level teams. And unlike a lot of my past work on uh, historical players, you can check out, if you want, 85,000 words over on backpicks.com under the top 40. I've gone deep in careers, but here the point of this series is really to focus on players when they're playing at their best. So peak play or the prime years, if you will, understanding the characteristics of players within those seasons and within those time periods. So before we begin, let's quickly lay out the criteria just to be clear so we're all on the same page. If you wanted to make a list based on entertainment or aesthetics, guys in history who were the most innovative or creative, players who have had memorable, indelible postseason moments. You can do that. Uh, That's perfectly fine, but that's not the point of the kind of dialogue and discussion that I want to have in this great debate series. So I really care about championship equity. How much more likely you make it for your team to win a title by being there? And it can't just be the specific team you're on. We have to think about the quality of your play influencing all kinds of playoff teams to get a picture of your championship equity. So sometimes you're on teams that don't win titles and sometimes you're on teams that do win titles. But we're trying to analyze your play in a way where the main goal is to win a championship on contending teams. That's the easiest way to think about this. How much do you move? 
the needle. And in basketball, so much of it is about the postseason. So I really am going to constantly come back to uh, you know how a guy can perform in the playoffs if there are changes in his game in the playoffs. We'll try to discuss them, emphasize them, and understand what happened and why. So those are the key goals. That's the criteria. Um, I'm going to have two guiding principles of player comparison that I've never discussed publicly, but I think over the years, having done this a lot, especially having gone through the Backpicks Goat Top 40 exercise with all those players, I, I think these are the two guiding principles of comparison that I want to always sort of come back to as navigating features of these conversations. The first is never judge a player in his worst or best situation. Never judge a player in his worst or best situation. Meaning, we have to look at the context, we have to consider other contexts too. So, what made a guy's stats change in certain scenarios? What what would a guy's stats look like if he were in other scenarios? Why did he suddenly appear to get better or worse? Did he really get better or worse? We have to think about those kind of counterfactuals, things that didn't happen but we can go through the thought thought experiment to say, huh, maybe this was like the ideal situation for this guy in terms of his raw box score stats, but not his impact numbers. You know, maybe he wasn't that valuable on that team. Or or maybe vice versa. Maybe we say, you know, this guy had great impact metrics. He looked really valuable. He had these crazy box score stats. But what, was there a reason for this? Was this an ideal situation? And what would happen if he were put in another situation. So never judge a player by his best or worst scenario, and that forces us to look at some other stuff. The second guiding principle, and this is such a huge one that I don't think I've ever really seen talked about ever, is always compare the player to himself. Meaning, always compare the player in different years to himself, different versions of the same player. 2000 and Two Kobe versus 2005 Kobe. 2013 James Harden versus 2017 James Harden. And the value behind this exercise is it not only forces you to look at, you know, did a player really grow? What changes did he go through? Um, why did he go through them? But it forces you to kind of implicitly say, hey, one of these has something the other one doesn't. So now if I say, Okay, why is 2015 James Harden better than 2013 James Harden? Just making up seasons here. We'll, we'll get to them in a second. But if I force myself to do that, then all of a sudden when I compare 2013 James Harden to another player, I've already forced myself and established a baseline of performance, and I can understand those warts, and all, all of the warts are out in the open and naked. I just it's just going to force me to have a more balanced view of a player to argue against himself basically and then to understand when he grew, when he declined, what specific things made this stuff work for the player in a given year. So, principle number 1 never judge a player in his best or worst situation. Principle number 2 that we'll come back to always compare the player to himself. Before we get started, if you want to support this podcast. If you're interested in this kind of stuff, you can sign up over at patreon.com slash thinking basketball. There is a lot more historical information for Patreon subscribers. I've got 
old articles, databases, stats, historical stats back to 1955. So there's just a lot uh, over there on this kind of stuff. We also have a Thinking Basketball Discord community where I think now they've run, we're up to two all-time drafts. I know we just wrapped up an all-time draft where you look at different versions of different players and you try to team build around them and discuss their strengths and weaknesses. So if you're into this kind of thing, you might like it over there. You can also support this podcast. This is the most basic one, but it's the one I always forget to point out just by heading on over to your uh, store where you consume podcasts, your app store, your Stitcher, whatever, and leave a rating and review. That helps tremendously. That helps you know boost boost algorithm standings and all those things that I don't understand how they work. <laughs> and of course, the, I think the biggest thing maybe right now you can do to support this podcast is support the um, sponsors that help make this podcast possible. So right now, this episode is brought to you by The Athletic. Um, and if I have a deal, if you go over to theathletic.com slash thinkingbasketballpod, you get the first month free and you get 50% off the subscription price, which is a pretty nice deal. It means it's like a couple bucks a month um, for an entire year. That might make an awesome holiday gift or an early present or something like that. And that's simply one of the best ways you can support this podcast right now. It, listeners uh, of this podcast know that I have the Athletic app. I customize my feed, which is really cool. It's probably my favorite part of the content experience. And so I just pick the authors, you know, they got all kinds of huge names, David Aldridge, Sam Amick, John Hollinger. And there is a very topical John Hollinger piece that popped up on my timeline this week that connects back to James Harden to a certain degree. I've been working on this great debates idea all summer for a while, trying to, you know, look at the players and figure out how to size them up. And sure enough, whenever that was yesterday, or two days ago, Hollinger has this piece on why the three-point shot foul should no longer reward three shots. And it's a fantastic piece. Um, Absolutely, if you already have The Athletic subscription, check it out. If you don't, theathletic.com slash thinkingbasketballpod. Don't forget the pod at the end, which uh, lets them know you listened to this podcast and (laughs) enjoyed it. So, um, he basically lays out a pretty comprehensive argument for why the three-point shot should no longer give three free throws. Um, I thought it was a fantastic bit of argumentation. For those who don't know, he kind of glossed over it. The three-point shot used to be worth two free throws on a foul, and the league followed college at a certain point, I want to say off the top of my head, in the mid-90s, something like that by switching it to a three-shot foul. Uh, He basically goes through some pretty comprehensive arguments and compelling arguments about injuries, about spamming that, about foul hunting, about the value of a three-shot foul, and so on and so forth. So this obviously circles us back to James Harden, who has far and away drawn the most three-shot fouls of any player in the last few years. He was almost out on an island by himself when this trend started. Well, when it started, he was, and now other players are starting to draw more three-shot fouls with a little bit more regularity. But he's absolutely incredible at it, falling down, leg kicking, uh, getting the hand and accentuating contact at the top. All of that foul baiting set, foul drawing behavior is a huge part of his game in general, um, not just from the three-point line. 
So this will become an issue in a moment when we talk about what changes for Harden in the playoffs, because just as a teaser, his free throw drawing rate on these three shot fouls is about 1.1 every 36 minutes over the last couple seasons, 2018, 2019. But if we look at the postseason, that goes down to 0.8 three-shot fouls every 36 minutes. It's not an enormous thing, but it's a fairly large drop by frequency or percentage, and it's something that is indicative of the rest of the things that are happening when we get to the postseason. Anyway, you can check that out, theathletic.com slash thinkingbasketballpod. Uh, They also have local coverage of teams, all 30 teams. They have really great writers blanketing them, things like that. They do have other sports if you're into that non-basketball behavior, but check them out, support us, uh, theathletic.com slash thinkingbasketballpod. Okay, now it is time for me to alienate the entire state of Texas. I don't know why I do this to myself. I, I guess it's because you all asked for it, and this is this fun. This is a fun, interesting conversation, of course. Um, some people do get angry, and they might. I'm warning you. I'm just. This is the parental advisory warning right now. Um, think Things are going to get bumpy in the next hour for some of your favorite players if you're listening to this. No one is safe. None of the three guys... I'm about to discuss are safe. Uh, of course, at the exact same time, I hold these three players in extremely high regard and think they were better at basketball than almost any human who's ever played. So just keep that in mind uh, as we go through this. Let's start with James Harden. And I think the place to start with Harden uh, I was asked a question on Twitter a while ago from at Bitsfish that kind of sparked the ball, you know, got the ball rolling on this whole thing. So at Bitsfish asks, are you underrating James Harden's scalability? Why do you think his skill set cannot carry over well in a less ball-dominant role? So when we look at your game, what does it look like when you go from playing with poor teammates to really good teammates? And I explain this in detail. There's basically two chapters in Thinking Basketball, the book devoted to this. I won't belabor it here. There's also a Nylon Calculus article I wrote a year or two ago discussing this concept, but basically what Bitsfish is asking is, hey, Ben, I've heard you say Harden is really, really good at carrying a team, this kind of like floor-raising idea, making sure that they're not going to be bad. In in fact, he's a one-man offense, and he makes them pretty good. But you've also at the exact same time, in the same breath, turned around and said, if you put him on Golden State, if you put him on San Antonio, if you put him with better teammates or other playoff type teams, they wouldn't be that great or he wouldn't necessarily have the same impact. That's the more precise way of saying it. Why? Well, the reason why I don't think his value carries over very well without the ball is let's look at all the things that make someone valuable without the basketball for a second. So he doesn't have a high motor. He's not constantly moving. That doesn't mean that James Harden doesn't work a lot or you know he dribbles all the time. That doesn't mean that. But he's just not a high-motor kind of basketball player. He never has been, go, even going back to Arizona State. He jogs getting back on defense. That's, a, that's a, been a huge qualm of mine for a while. His transi- transition defense is 
quite poor in that regard. He doesn't move a lot on defense. And on offense, he's not an active jitterbug. He's not cutting and constantly running around. And that's not his style. It's not his game. So when you are paired with teammates who are inevitably going to have the ball, either lead guards or pinch post players or low post players, whatever it is, you have a more of a motion egalitarian offense, it doesn't matter. One of the keys to having value without the ball is moving and having a motor. Um, he doesn't move great without the ball. He actually uses the ball to lull you to sleep. And I talk about this in my recent D'Angelo Russell profile on the Thinking Basketball YouTube channel. D'Lo and Harden, they're not explosive, shifty, fast-twitch athletes. And so the cuts without the ball that a lot of players who move off ball use to shake defenders, um, they're not necessarily very skilled at that. But when you give them the ball, they can put it on the string and mesmerize you and put you to sleep. They, they yo-yo you to sleep. James Harden, in a way, is the cuttlefish of the NBA. If you aren't familiar with the cuttlefish, it is actually one of my favorite aquatic creatures. Maybe that should be the next great debate series, Top 10 Deep Sea Animals. Um, no, the, the cuttlefish does this thing where it uses basically like electricity, I think, to change color and create all these vibrant, glowing, colorful, colorful patterns that mesmerize prey or other creatures in front of it. You can check it out on YouTube. It's the giant cuttlefish. It's it's uh, like a light show. But the idea is it sort of mesmerizes you or hypnotizes you. And this hypnotic nature is part of what Harden does with the ball. But he can't do that without the ball. He, he doesn't, he's, he's not a guy who's shuki, uh, shaking and juking you and cutting. And he needs the basketball to do that. The next big thing we think about when we talk about off-ball value is catch and shoot. You know, how much of a shooter and a spacer is he? He's not a bad catch-and-shoot guy by any stretch of the imagination, but he is not a great catch-and-shoot guy either. His catch-and-shoot accuracy over the last few years is sort of mid mid to high 30-ish, which is, you know, right around league average or a little better than league average on those shots. And, of course, there are a lot of players in the league who don't even take those, so if you're league average on catch-and-shoot, you're still an above-average catch-and-shoot guy. And that's where I would define you know, or sort of place Harden in that sphere. He's not a great catch-and-shoot guy, but you probably wouldn't want to leave him open all the time. Um, so a lot of his value is instead coming from you know, pick-and-roll, having the basketball, even as a passer. I think his passing, and we'll talk about it a little more in a second, I think his passing is finely tuned to specific spread pick and roll reads that he's developed over the years. He's not a phenomenal off-ball passer. You don't think of him as Lonzo Ball when the when the ball hits him in a dynamic situation. And I think overall that package is one of the least additive off-ball superstars that I can think of. I don't know, I'd say he's the, like the least because I think when he doesn't have the ball there are still plenty of good things happening like if you put James Harden off the ball a lot of the time, he's still a good player. I don't know if he's an all-star, but he's still a good NBA player. But on the spectrum, when we talk about top 40, top 50, top 100 players ever, 
and a superstar offensive engine comes up like this, I think he's in the conversation for one of the least additive off-ball superstars uh, in the modern game. Before we compare Harden to himself and kind of walk through how we got to 2020 and the guy scoring 40 points a game, the question on my mind goes back to Wilt Chamberlain in 1962 and 1963. 50 points and 44 points per game. It goes back to Michael Jordan in 1987, 37 points per game. It goes back to Kobe Bryant in 2006, 35 points per game. These are the mega scoring seasons in NBA history. And in every one of those situations, the player who involved, the player who I just mentioned, lowered his scoring as the team around him got better. And the question is, why? That's the thing to think about. I've certainly written a lot about this, especially with Wilt specifically. So if you want to understand it at that level or the root of it historically, uh, it's in Thinking Basketball, the book, or Wilt's profile on backpicks.com. But I just think that's a guiding principle for what we're about to talk about as we ramp up to Harden, you know, James Harden's scoring aficionado. Keep that question in your mind as we build up to this. Why do other mega scores go down when their teams get better? Okay, let's start with, uh, I'm not going to have this much background for every player, but I think for Harden it's important to, to realize how we got to where we are today. He really sort of became a relevant player in 2012, coming off the bench for the Thunder and that little bit of a Ginobili esque role getting to play and probably unfairly pick on bench units and he was super hyper efficient in this role I know super and hyper are synonymous but uh, I can't you know it's hyper and super trust me on this one I'm about to tell you why if we look at his scoring rate um, and in this case for this entire series I've adjusted scoring to the era to the modern era so it's inflation adjusted I have a YouTube video on the Thinking Basketball YouTube channel that explains the process behind that. But if we look at that, we say, okay, he's 22 points per 75, inflation adjusted, and his true shooting percentage is 13% ahead of the league. 13%! Wowzers! That is an incredible statistic uh, and a great statistical scoring year. 22 plus 13. And he does this on a high-level offense. Oklahoma City was plus 5, largely, of course, because of Kevin Durant and Russell Westbrook and a number of other good players. But that is a huge scoring role off the bench. And that scoring role led many people, myself included, to think that if he went to another team that wasn't as good and was the lead dog, his numbers would go up. Oh, there's that concept again. So the offense isn't as good. We're going to give him the ball more. We know his numbers will get better. But does that mean he's inherently that much better? He goes to Houston. That was the Kevin McHale era. Those teams played really, really fast. And they shot a lot of threes. And maybe this period of time, not last year or this year or 2018, maybe this period, 2013, 2015, this is when Maury Ball really exploited a market inefficiency. Because I do... I do buy the idea that Maury Ball is too rigid. Any structure that is rigid and doesn't have adaptability or flexibility 
is going to have stress points where it breaks. And so the idea of just only having a layup or three-point system or something like that, having players who have no in-between game or no counters, that's really, that's really what it's about. The in-between game is irrelevant. It's the counters that matter. And when you don't have counters, you don't have that beautiful, robust offense that's resilient and adaptable. And that's what you want. By the way, I mean, I think massive props for getting more mileage out of what you had than basically anyone else during this period specifically. I think this is the period where they had the largest market advantage. And so 2013, Kevin McHale teams, they play really fast. They shoot a lot of threes. So not only does Harden go to a place where he's the lead guy, but he goes to a place that's probably the most generous to his stat line, and his stat line is the thing that's driving the conversation around him being an elite player. So the point for me here in these two seasonal comparisons is that he was already pretty darn good, even though he's coming off the bench in 2012. And how much better do you think he got in 2013? I think he got a little better. I think the playmaking clearly got better. I think his uh, growth and, and age at that point, 22 to 23-year-old season, stuff like that, getting the experience and the reps to start to be on the ball more in a system like that, centered around him. But look what happens to his scoring. His scoring goes from 22 per 75 plus 13, so 22 plus 13 percent, that's 13 percent better than the league, to 26 plus 7 percent. That is a plus four offense, so you think like just on the face of it, eh, it looks like not that much worse of an offense than what they had in Oklahoma City, so that's pretty darn good. But on the other side, it's an offense where they're you know sacrificing some defense a little bit. They're playing more offensively inclined players. Not really sure how that's going to hold up in the postseason over a large sample. So yeah, it's it's good. The point is it's good. We're talking about a guy who made the all-star team and probably rightfully so, um, although his defense is, leaves a lot to be desired. If we fast forward and we assume, because for me, he gets a little bit better each year. He's always trying to add something. So when we get to 2016, this is the basically the bridge between McHale and, and D'Antoni. In 2016, the Rockets... Harden has a career-high offensive load of 53. Offensive load is one of my metrics that basically estimates direct involvement in plays that end a possession, shots, turnovers, things like that. And he has a career-high in scoring that year, 20, 29 points per 75, plus 6% efficiency. And that's with Bickerstaff in between the McHale in D'Antoni eras. So the scoring's probably better. Passing is coming along. He's got a passer rating of seven. It's basically a one to ten scale. So these are these are good indicators that he is a high level offensive player with a system built around him. The team wasn't that great that year. And I think because they had poor lineups. Specifically, they started a lot of games with Dwight Howard, post back surgery Dwight Howard at center, and Clint Capella. So two big men who couldn't space the floor, couldn't shoot. Not even necessarily skilled. They're not passers or anything like that. But Harden gets to play D'Antoni ball. And I think the key here is the space and the shooting. D'Antoni takes 
How Howard's gone. He leaves, which led a lot of experts to think Houston would would suffer a dip in performance. Instead, he starts Capella, and who does who does he replace Mr. Howard with? Ryan Anderson. He replaces Mr. Howard with Mr. Anderson. <laughs> and of course, Ryan Anderson is a shooter, and so you're giving up something on defense to get something back on offense, a lot back on offense, not only shooting but spacing. So now you can play that D'Antoni four-out spread pick-and-roll system that we've come to identify with James Harden. Harden this year in 2017 puts up an offensive load of 64. That would be the highest all-time load, meaning he's just totally dictating every possession. That would be the highest all-time load in NBA history if it weren't for Russell Westbrook in 2017 as well. He also puts up the second highest uh, shot creation estimate in my box creation stat. 18 shots per 100 he's creating for teammates. That is also second best. Um, These are just crazy numbers. It's also his best passing season in my passer rating metric, over eight. And again, I think a lot of that comes from being able to pass in the specific situations he's comfortable in. So spread, pick, and roll. I'm going to give you a guy diving to the hoop with you. You can make that pocket pass or you can hit him on the lob, especially if we put him in a dunker spot. Harden, obviously, with that left-to-right pocket pass, so good at that. One of the best to do that. But he is a left-to-right dominant passer. I do not think of him as like, He's not in my top tier of all-time passers. He's not in my second tier of all-time passers. I I do think we're talking about a guy who is getting really good at specific types of passes, and he's a left-to-right dominant passer. So part of Milwaukee's scheme last year, and you saw this in the playoffs from Utah as well, Milwaukee came up with this crazy idea, which I guess was first proposed by Scottie Pippen on an ESPN segment, where he said, I, I would sit on James Harden's left shoulder and make him go right. And so in a regular season game last year, Eric Bledsoe and any buck guarding James Harden almost let him go by so it could be like a five on four. And he could do this because Harden doesn't have great mid-range counters. He's now developing this floater. He's got it. It's good. It's not great. So he does have a little floater that he's trying to develop as a counter. But the idea was, if I sit on his shoulder, he can't get to the step back. Another thing he's developed. We haven't gotten to it yet chronologically. We stopped in 2017 here. But he's going to really add the step back. And so once he adds a step back, I sit on his shoulder. I take it away. uh, I let him go by. And part of the key to the success of that was that he can't pass right to left very well. So he struggles with that specific pass, but he's very tuned into these other passes. So back to 2017, Houston has a plus six offense, meaning their offensive efficiency is six points better than league average. That's great. That's phenomenal. Um, Harden's box plus minus in my model has always been in like plus four, plus five range, which is, again, that's very good. That's all, that's all star, maybe all NBA, things like that. Regular season 2017, it jumps to plus eight. I asked the same question again. What changed in James Harden in 2016 to 2017? 
I can pinpoint specific things that he's slowly starting to put in. I think he's one of the better players in history at constantly improving and looking at ways to improve. But does he have an enormous leap at whatever that is, age 28? I I don't think so. Not to me. Does he get better? Yes, he does get better. He continues to get better and adding things to his game, specifically the step back, uh, you know, unlocking that pull-up three-point shot, all that. So I buy the idea that in 2017, he is better than 2016 by, I don't want to say a large margin, but there, there's a level, there's a, there's, a, there's a mini level up. Let's put it that way. So Houston's offense is plus six with this D'Antoni ball, with these, with these, you know, the overall thing may not be phenomenal because they're cheating. They're giving away defense to get more offense. Now, in 2018, by the way, the offense was plus six again with Chris Paul and plus five in 2019. But you notice 2018, the defense was much better. And that 2018 Rocket team was one of the best non-championship teams ever. If your argument against Harden is that his style of play can't win a championship, or when I talk about scaling up, that he can't scale up to a level that helps a team be a very, very good or great team. The 2018 Rockets lit that on fire. I mean, that was one of the great non-title teams ever, and if they don't run into an historical Golden State team, they won a championship in most seasons. Fantastic team. Chris Paul had a lot to do with that, though. And there's this idea that, well, maybe Chris Paul and Harden having so much success demonstrates that you know Harden really can scale up he can fit next to other great players but that's not what happened there so I think that's a really key point to know about James James Harden's narrative his scoring by the way still went up next to Chris Paul it wasn't like he took a back seat next to Paul so if we look at that inflation adjusted scoring rate again 29 points per 75 in 2017. That's when D'Antoni comes in. 32 in 2018 next to Chris Paul. 36 in 2019. Paul playing less. Harden just doing more and more and more. The step back more and more dangerous. So per possession, he's just doing his thing more. What happened when they were on the court together? So much of that team was the success of redundancy. I thought it was brilliant. The idea that if you have a spread pick and roll system and a bunch of 3 and D players, why not have another guy like Harden? So in the 10 minutes a game or the 12 minutes a game he's not on the court, you get elite offense again. And when he is on the court, you know, he doesn't have to 90% because no no one 100% of the time is going to run the same play. So we'll give it to Harden 75% of the time. And he can rest 25% of the other time. Paul can do something. Paul's a better passer. He likes to snake into the paint more. So the actions can be similar but slightly different. But the pieces fit around Paul the same way they fit around Harden. And so you get success from redundancy. You get consistent excellence with the roster versus, well, the bench is okay. But when we put these two superstars together, they're so additive they become all-time great lineups. That's the Golden State model. That's the high ceiling, super, super 
like um, interactive synergistic model. Instead, what happened with Houston, again, I think this is such a key point to know. In just over 2,000 minutes in 2018 and 2019, uh, Paul and Harden shared the court together. Well, let me, let me do Harden first. Harden played over 3,000 minutes without Chris Paul in the last two years. Houston was a plus seven team. That's net rating in those two years, meaning they outscored their opponents by seven points per 100. They had a 117 offensive rating. Excellent. Now, when you look at lineups of elite teams with their best player on the court, they will go higher than plus seven. You will see plus nines and plus 11s and things like that. So not phenomenal, not like all-time great, but very good stuff. Okay, what about when it was uh, Chris Paul on the court as well? The two of them played over 2,000 minutes together in the regular season. They went from plus seven with Harden. When you add Paul, they go up to plus nine. The offensive rating goes from 117 to 119. So a little bit of a bump, a little bit of a level up, but this is not what we see when we see great additive lineups. Nothing Nothing to sneeze at, but the idea here. And you see it right now with Houston. You saw it in 2019 when Paul was injured. When Paul goes out, they don't lose much because they already have Harden Ball running the ship. He's the main driving force. By the way, if you're wondering why I emphasize the idea of redundancy so much, in 1,600 minutes or so without James Harden but with Chris Paul, the Rockets in those two years were plus 10 Better than better than when it was just Harden or when they played together. Now, a lot of that is playing bench units. That's the brilliance of it. But still, that is the sign of, you know, the system catering to one of those guys, but adding another one doesn't do too much. Plus 10, 115 offensive rating because your defense can be better. You, you have defensive problems when James Harden is on the court. I talked about it earlier with his motor, um, transition defense. He gets back cut a lot. He gets beat off the dribble. He doesn't move a lot. Houston likes to switch in many ways to protect him, so he doesn't have to move. Uh, There was a period of time where, because he's so stout, he's actually a solid post defender. There's some numbers floating out there about how successful he was in his post sample possessions in 2019. That is a small sample. You have to always remember that. And that is only against a select few uh, few players. You know, he's not he's not guarding Carl Anthony Towns in the post. That's not where he's going to excel. But against other players who aren't that much t- taller, he can use his heft, he can use his body size, and he is a solid post defender. But overall, his defense is a negative. And I think in the past, it's been an enormous negative. I think the past couple seasons it's been reined back in and that's helped, but that negative defense is something that is going to hurt him in a second when we start talking about Dwayne Wade. We talked about the scoring, 29 points up to 32 points, up to 36 points. Now he's near 40 points as I record this in 2020, early in 2020. But what happens in the playoffs? You know, that's what Jim Mora wants to know. Harden's three-year playoff averages, so he plays almost 40 games in this stretch from 2017 to 2019. 
This is half a season. This is a good, stable stretch. All of a sudden, those scoring numbers go down to 31 points per 75 on plus 2% efficiency. Those numbers are adjusted for opponent quality based on their defensive performance in the regular season. One of the biggest drops in NBA history among any stars, as I detailed in a Thinking Basketball YouTube video. The shot creation comes down. You see numbers like 17 and 18 shots created. That comes down to 13. Uh, The impact numbers. Augmented plus minus in the playoffs, plus four and a half. Box plus minus comes down. Instead of that plus eight line we talked about earlier, comes down closer to plus six. The three-year postseason offense from 2017 to 2019 for the Rockets was a little, is around plus four, meaning three and a half, 3.8 points better than their opponents, something like that. So why, why does he see these changes in the postseason? Well, we've talked a lot about it. I teased it earlier with the foul drawing. He, he can't draw fouls as well. It's such a big part of his game, picking up these extra points, picking up this efficiency, because he's a great foul. You know, what is he, 85% every season from the line? So that is such a high return on the investment that when in the regular season he goes from 18 free throws per 100, that comes all the way down to 14 free throws per 100 in the playoffs, that starts to ding away at the efficiency. Why can't he draw the fouls? Well, some people say the refs get used to I think it's when you've seen the tricks as a player and a coaching staff and you can scheme for it, this schemeability idea in a seven-game series, he loses all those little you know, rip the ball through with two hands when he comes in the lane, draw the three-point foul, uh, get your hand in the cookie jar so he hooks your arm. You can you can get used to that as a player. When the foul isn't called and, and the player doesn't stick his hand in the cookie jar, the result is is terrible. It's ugly. More importantly, I think there's a lack of counters. He is so good at the things he's good at. Step back three-point shooting, spread pick and roll. If he gets the switch, he puts you in the the hypnotic dance with the dribble. He goes full cuttlefish, rocks you to sleep, gets to his pull-up or gets all the way to the rim. And he doesn't have a back-to-the-basket game. He doesn't have a pinch post game. Essentially, a lack of counters. Even the way he gets into his step back is very specific and very rhythmic. And it's not like he's got this robust arsenal of spins and fades and pull-ups and things like that. So the lack of counters, to me, is the thing that consistently makes the numbers drop off from the regular season to the postseason. Again, that inherently is not a terrible thing. He's still a great player. He's still a fantastic sort of all-time level offensive player. But... If you're judging him based on those regular season numbers, if if the idea of James Harden is built around his regular season box score sexiness, 40-point games and you know things of this nature, to me, I think you have to look to the playoffs and look at those numbers as something that's more representational of how he's actually pressuring defenses with his scoring. You know, as an aside... Something like scoring and true shooting percentage, that's that's reflective of often the amount of pressure you put on a, an opposing defense. And look, 30, 31 points per 75 on plus 2% efficiency, that's nothing to sneeze at. That's great. But there are other players in that area. And so when the idea, when the argument for Harden starts with, well, he's a better scorer than so-and-so, 
uh, that's when I think you have to look at the playoff numbers as the thing that is not only literally happened when he got to the postseason, but more indicative of how he is as a scorer. How did those numbers stack up with someone like Dwayne Wade? We could go back and look at 2005, 2006 Dwayne Wade. I, I might reference it uh, in a second here, but just for simplicity, let's look at his best stretch of years as 2009 to 2011. So with Harden, we've got 17 to present, 18 to present. Uh, with Wade, let's do 2009 to 2011. We know before LeBron got there, the Heat weren't very good. In 2009, Wade had his version of a mega season, an offensive load of 58. That's a career high. It's one of the higher marks of all time. He was doing everything that season. Scored 32 points per 75, adjusted to modern times, plus 3% shooting uh, relative to the league average. So you see right there that regular season number just on its face is better than Harden's playoff number. He had a passer rating of 8, created 13 shots per 100, an estimated 13 shots per 100 for teammates. This is this is really good stuff. Box plus minus of plus 6.5 in the regular season that year in 2009. That was his peak. Problem was he also peaked in another category, which is three-point shooting. And he only shot 31% from downtown that year. And this is problematic for me especially when we talk about what happened with the Heatles in 2011 when the you know when the band got together and you saw some redundancy you didn't you didn't have that great scaling you didn't have that great fit that made five plus five equals ten when LeBron's offense in Cleveland was better in 2010 than the Heat offense was in Miami in 2011 with LeBron next to Wade and Chris Bosh. Now, a lot of that is offense. I mean, a lot of that is roster and the offensive construction around these guys. Absolutely. Miami in 2011 was on the scrap heap at the point guard and center position. This was before small ball. They didn't play Bosh five, LeBron four lineups. They had like Zydrunas Ilgauskas, Joel Anthony, Carlos Arroyo, Mike Bibby. Uh, I mean, they just had nothing at these other positions, and they were just going to the scrap heap to try to find guys. And so also the, you know, sort of the roster construction and the spacing wasn't perfect. But that 31% from Wade, 28%, he was never a good outside shooter. And so off ball, he gave up a lot of value there with spacing and shooting. But... He does get some of that value back as an offensive rebounder. He's one of the great guard rebounders, fantastic guard rebounder. And as a cutter, he's a very good cutter. He has a feel for cutting. He has he has a willingness to play with other guys, you know. He has a willingness both in terms of personality and on-court style to give up the ball, run around, set screens. Um, of course, he deferred to LeBron James in Miami essentially. So that that at least indicates that he can fit with some guys, even if he loses some value, and even if he bleeds some value because of that shooting and spacing. An example that came up on the Thinking Basketball all-time draft was someone paired Harden with Kyle Korver. And I thought that was such a such an illustrative example because 
if you were to pair Harden with a player like Kyle Korver, it could be J.J. Redick, it could be Reggie Miller. I mean, we can go on and on. The movement shooter type. So much of Korver's value comes from movement. He obviously has some value as a spot-up shooter because he's such a good shooter. But you also want him, especially when he was younger and at his peak, running around. You want that movement to help open up other things on offense. And you might say, well, you know, a good coach is going to run the right motion around Corver um, with Harden on the court, and Harden can be part of it. He can certainly make those passes. But then you take away Harden's spread pick and roll advantage that Mike D'Antoni gave him. And I think you take away certain passes that he's the most skilled at. That's that's the rub. Whereas a guy like Wade, you know, Wade to me can play next to players like that a little better off and on ball. He doesn't have to be a strictly on ball guy, even though his 2009 stats were so much from being more on ball. Harden, if you push him off ball, you lose so much of the the stats that make the case for him. The plays that help him generate those stats go away very quickly. Wade's postseason numbers in this three-year period. Now remember, Harden was 31 plus 2%. From 2009 to 2011 in the playoffs, Dwayne Wade, 30 points per 75 plus 6% efficiency. If you watched him play during those moments, you know, 2010 against the Celtics, elite, high-level, great defense. They had trouble stopping him, even though he was playing next to Michael Beasley. It didn't matter. If you watch him against Dallas in the finals, now Dallas has said, and you know they, they shifted the floor toward LeBron a little bit more, but... Wade's first step. We saw it in 2006. We saw it in 2005 against the Pistons. 2005 Pistons. Very good defensive team coming off the all-time great defensive run in 2004. His first, I just think Wade has one of the all-time great first steps. And he's so long, so athletic, low to the floor like like a running back, like a bulldozer. So deep core strength to keep power and angles as he gets past people. And then the verticality and the length to finish in the air, to take contact. It's no wonder he was a free-throw-drawing magnet. That's always been my thing with the 2006 series, where he got all those free-throws. I Sure, you review any game, especially against a player that dominant, you're going to get a couple calls that were off or ticky-tack calls or things like that. But my general impression of this series, as someone who, especially in 2006, was, you know, no Miami Heat fan. I wasn't you know, wearing my uh, my Heat memorabilia or anything like that. But my impression just as a guy watching was, as the series wore on, wow, they, they couldn't stay in front of him. And then when they wanted to stay in front of him, he just had that mid-range thing. That 15-foot shot was just on point. It was automatic. It was like a magnet to the hoop. He did the same thing at Marquette. So now I've look what I've done. I've gone a decade backwards to college. I'm going in the wrong direction, going the wrong way. This is like a planes, trains, and automobiles scene. I am going the wrong way. What? You're going the wrong way. He says we're going the wrong way. 
Oh, he's drunk. How would he know where we're going? Yeah, how would he know? Um, let me get back on point here. Dwayne Wade, first step, very difficult to contain in the playoffs. That is a game with counters. That is a high-level scorer. Does he have the spacing and the three-point shooting? No, I think that takes away some of his scalability. Absolutely. I think we saw that in Miami. I've written about it in Thinking Basketball. Used him as an example. But when you see in the playoffs, 30 points per 75 plus 6% true shooting, your your head might want to snap around there. Mine does. His playmaking did go down, though. Why did his playmaking go down? I think it's because... He was good at those particular types of like middle pick and roll, center pick and roll, some lob action. He was, he was really good at that kind of stuff as a passer. Not great, but that's where he kind of found his sweet spot. Very underrated if you go back and look at his 2009-2010 film. I mean, he's slipping dimes into you know old Jermaine O'Neal that are just beautiful. Fantastic passes. But I don't think inherently... A great passer, wasn't gifted with like phenomenal court vision or anything like that. And so you get in the postseason and his shot creation numbers go under 10. They're at about 8 during this stretch. His passer rating goes down. When he's with LeBron, he moves off ball. And he's not a great off ball dynamic passer. He's willing. He's capable. He'll do it sometimes. But he loses some value there. The impact numbers over that playoff period... Plus 6.3 in my box, plus minus. So again, that's in the same ballpark, I think technically just ahead of where Harden was. His augmented plus minus when he was younger the first time around with Shaq next to him was around plus 5. Remember, Harden was plus 4.5. Wade was closer to plus 4, a little behind Harden in this second period, 2009 to 2011. The playoff offenses that he played on, those were defensive teams 2009-2010, even the regular season. They were always around average. He, he was, in a way, floor-raising a defensive team. But now, does that mean he's better than James Harden as a floor-raiser? Probably not. I don't think so. I think the more interesting question on that front is what would have happened if Wade ever could have played one of these offensive-heavy four-out lineups? I mean, the spacing today, this guy could have been an all-time blur. Like, we may talk about Dwayne Wade in the same breath as Michael Jordan if he played today. Because how are you, how are you going to stay in front of him? He never really got to play in a system where he could just kick to the shooters or spam pick and roll like this. I don't know what would have happened. But I think that's a very interesting kind of different era question that when you look at the skill set on the table does suggest Wade could be even better like he, he came along a few years too early he could be even better in this period biggest question mark for me with Wade can he stay healthy he's always been banged up and bruised you know your mileage is going to vary on all these kinds of things uh, I, I don't know but that's a concern for me way that as you will. Okay, last guy. Boy, what are we? We're about an hour in here. Man, that is a long time for me to be talking. Okay, I'll try to be. I'll try to be quick on this one. I've written many words over the years about Kobe Bryant, and I'll just try to plug in 
the key points to the things I've talked about with Wade and with specifically Harden and some of the ideas, you know, how do they scale, how do they fit, stuff like that. So with Kobe, first of all, comparing the player to himself. I think this is really instructional with him because if you go back to 1998 to 2003, I think you can clearly see where he adds to his game. 2000, he starts to become really good. 2001, maybe he's one of the best players in the league. He's got more dynamic scoring. The athleticism is probably the biggest thing that kicked up. Elevation on the shot, base strength, quickness, all that stuff. And you get to 2003, and here's the interesting thing. In 2003, Kobe Bryant turns his jumper into a three-point pull-up. He just starts taking contested three-point pull-ups the way all the lead guards in the league took 17-footers for 10 or 15 years before that. Michael Jordan did it. Kobe did it. The art that you know many people now nostalgically yearn for. So to me, the irony there is that Kobe is labeled as a guy who's archaic because he took a lot of mid-range shots and a lot of long twos. And that's true, but he also has this incredibly progressive, modern, forward-thinking element to his game that he put in in 2003. Now, if he played today, he would have taken 12 of those a game instead of four, or whatever it is. But Kobe was certainly more off-ball. We'll get to that in a second, but I want to finish just sort of comparing him to himself. Uh, In 2003... When we get to this point, he had a career high in offensive load of 51. Scoring was 30 points per 75. That's, again, inflation adjusted. 30 points per 75 plus 3%. So that's very similar to where Harden was in the playoffs the last few seasons. Shot creation. 2003 is when he finally starts to become like a really good offensive engine. Uh, About nine shots per 100 playing alongside another player like Shaq that's really good passer rating six to seven range always always a pretty good passer and again 38 percent from downtown he was he set a career high in my box plus minus model a plus 5.6 that was his career high until until 2008 which we'll get to and augmented plus minus of plus four so very similar in 2003 to the playoff numbers we've talked about for Harden to the regular season and playoff numbers we've talked about for Wade, although, of course, Wade's postseason scoring right now stands among the bunch. Uh, Then in 2005, something very interesting happened. Shaq left, and Kobe tried to pass. He tried to facilitate more, and he set a career high in turnovers by an enormous amount. Scoring was still at 28 per 75. The thing to me that jumps out is the turnovers. He tried to pass, he tried to create, but he's got a career high in turnovers during his prime by a pretty sizable amount. And he gets to 2006 and he says, Tom Jonovich, by the way, uh, came in to coach for Phil Jackson in 2005. So he's outside of the structure of the triangle. More on-ball stuff, similar to what you'd see around the league, versus the triangle, motion, spacing, floor balance, and again, Kobe's good off-ball player. So in 2006, Jackson comes back. Kobe says, I'm not going to try to pass it to teammates. I'm just going to pass it to the hoop. 35 points per 75, but only plus 2% efficiency. The plus 2% doesn't do it for me. That season doesn't do it for me. 
His turnovers are a career high, a career low, because he just passes it to the hoop. The impact numbers, right in the same ballpark. Uh, plus five box, plus minus, plus five augmented, plus minus. So this is really good floor raising. You know, the offense is a little above average. It's plus two. For a team like that, that's a really good job. But if we fast forward to 2008, which I think is his peak, and this period, 2006 to 2010, pretty clearly his best years for me. You could throw in 2003 as well. But we go to 2008. They're a much better team. They are now, instead of a plus two offense, they're a plus six offense. But they're a better defensive team as well. They're really, really good that year. And Kobe's uh, box plus minus in that season is his career best in my model, right around plus six. His augmented plus minus, that that also uses some on-off data, that's plus six. That's a career high for him. And that plus six is better than Wade or Harden ever hit in the regular season or the playoffs. The plus six in the box plus minus model is similar to them. Uh, 2008, I thought he played better defense, shot 36% from downtown, created about nine shots per 100 for teammates. Passer rating was better. So the totality of that body of work and the idea that he was a better off-ball player, he was a better off-ball player than both of these guys to me, Harden and Wade, because he was very active without the ball, though. He moved. Wade is a great cutter and an explosive cutter, but Kobe moved in different directions, in different places. I'm going to come off a screen. I'm going to back cut you. Constant kind of movement without the basketball in a way that threatened and pressured defenses. It picked up some gravity as part of his off-ball game. So you do have to worry about him. He does have some shooting and spacing that are beneficial and additive. And he can move without the ball and cut and get to places that fit within his offense. Part of that is because when he catches it, he's dangerous in so many areas. This is the this is the the perk of having a back to the basket game. So when you cut into space at the elbow, he can catch and turn in one motion and hit that shot. We saw him hit that shot over and over and over again during those years. Doesn't even really have to be square, it just gets into it. Wade is not a guy who's going to come off a pin down screen curl up at the elbow and make that shot constantly. And James Harden certainly isn't doing that. But wait, but Kobe can also get in a position where he gets a seal and a post. He can catch with his back to the basket at eight feet and hit that. He did this a lot. He's a very impressive and underrated off-ball player. And I think that's a big factor in comparing him, especially to these two guys. Therefore, What I'm about to tell you should not come as a surprise. In the playoffs, when we get to the postseason, when we get to trying to create championship-level offense and team heights against high-quality and championship-level defense, what happened to Kobe Bryant? I would see you could say he got better. Check this out. 2008 to 2010, shot creation goes up to 10 per 100. The scoring... His scoring over those three years was 31 points per 75, plus 4% efficiency. He actually hit plus 5% efficiency in a smaller stretch 
from 2006 to 2008. Remember, 2006 to 2008, they play whatever, 30-something playoff games. But 2008 to 2010, it's like 60 playoff games against all kinds of different opponents and defenses. So 31 plus 4, 30 plus 5, that is similar to Wade's 30 plus 6. And for my money, just a, a, a level, not an enormous jump, but it is a level ahead of Harden's 31 plus 2. So all that stuff we talked about earlier with changes in the playoffs, counters, it goes the other way with Kobe. Kobe is a guy I've described as inelastic or resilient. His robust scoring game allows him to have counter after counter after counter. Yes, he took too many long twos, which prevented his efficiency from ever seeing plus 8, plus 10, plus plus 12, you know, the all-time greats. But that level below, all these other things that we've discussed, allow him to succeed in general against so many different kinds of defenses as a score his numbers more some more advanced numbers box plus minus of over plus six so right in this wade harden kobe their playoff box plus minuses are very similar he has the highest augmented plus minus just under plus five from 2008 to 2010 in the playoffs this is the one that kind of impresses me the most his postseason offenses during that period were about plus seven So we haven't talked about any of the other players in this series playing on a team of that height. Uh, When he played with Shaq, these were some of the greatest postseason offenses in NBA history, up near plus plus 9 and plus 10 over three-year stretches at the beginning of the decade. I, I think a lot of that comes from what I just described, his ability to play without the basketball, his ability to still be a high-level creator, an offensive engine, and a good passer. Uh, He has outside shooting, and then the counters. He's got more counters and more robustness to his scoring game and his offensive game than any of these guys. Now, of course, if you're not intimately familiar with my work, you might be screaming at the radio right now, like, wait a second, the teammates, what about the teammates? Of course the teammates matter. We're not, I'm not saying in any way, shape, or form that a single player is responsible for his team's long-term postseason offense or defense. It's not the point at all. It's just to say that the evidence is there that the nature of Kobe's game has proven to fit and scale up to very high-level teams, and I think we can see that in his style. I think we can understand why that's happening. You know, Pau Gasol and him were excellent fits. I think the triangle was actually a good fit for him because it allowed some of that off-ball activity to take shape, even if he went freelance from time to time. So you end up with him playing on better playoff teams, better playoff offenses than these other two guys ever had a chance to play on. And of course, you know, Harden at the least got to play with Chris Paul and a bunch of shooters that fit him and Mike D'Antoni and I would describe that as a best case scenario for him maybe you could have maybe you could supercharge some of the other parts some of the other off-ball players next to him as shooters and get better of course but I mean that 2018 Houston team was a great team 
Dwayne Wade got to play with, I mean, technically he got to play with Shaq himself in 2005 and 2006, although that was not the same version of Shaq, of course. And then he got to play with LeBron James and Dwayne Wade. Team construction, not perfect. Again, please don't look at the outcome of a team and say, you know, Kobe's team was plus eight and then this guy's plus seven. And so that's how you rank the players. That's not what I'm saying at all. Just looking at the evidence, the the things that actually happened that we know um, where Kobe did very well on high-level teams as a lead guy or fitting in next to other options. In the case with Shaq, Shaq was more of the lead guy. And in the case with Gasol and Odom, uh, Kobe was more of the lead guy. And still, in both cases, very, very impressive results, not only on the team level, but on the individual numbers for Kobe. So what about their defense? I think before we wrap this up and summarize uh, some quick comments about their defense, it's hard to do defense justice on a podcast. You need a lot of film. The classic stats don't do it you know, great justice. I do think an, a thing I like for Kobe here is when he has more energy for defense, he plays better defense. By the time you get to like 2010 in that part of his career, I don't think he had a lot left in the tank defensively to the point where if you if you made him, you know, if you surrounded him with great players like an Olympic roster, he'd be a great defender. But I do think 2008 he played better defense. I think having more balance in his offensive game in the Olympics in 2008, you could see it. He still has the ability to come out as a better defender. I never thought he was a great defender when he was younger. He had some really good years. I've talked about that before. But here I'm just talking about the ability to exert on ball and team pressure. He was very good at jumping passing lanes and um, executing schemes at times. And when the motor was there, he was a, you think of like Wade, like Wade probably had a better motor. Okay. So those guys to me are in similar situations defensively in terms of their impact. I might go more a little bit more toward Wade. But I like the idea of Kobe scaling up with better teammates because that gives his defense a little bit more. Harden, on the other hand, just loses so much ground defensively on these guys that whatever you think about his offense and, and whatever you think about, you know, building putting him in a different system, even the Harden ball system, even the D'Antoni ball system. He gives back so much value on defense that, to me, it pulls him behind Kobe at his best. It pulls him behind Wade at his best. I think Wade and Kobe, for me, are a much harder debate based on some of the questions and things I've discussed here. You can see how similar all the numbers are in the postseason. And Harden's numbers are similar as well, but I think there are things that uh, are less attractive. The, the defensive side of the basketball, he's a negative. That's one. And then there's the issue of him scaling or playing in other scenarios. Like in the current scenario he's in, or in a scenario like that, I think you can argue that his offense is better than the other two guys. I think you can make that argument. I don't know how much I buy it because of the lack of counters, but it I think it is there. But I do think you also have to, in the same breath, give some justice to saying, 
you know, that was probably a best case scenario. This is probably a best case scenario for why we value Harden so highly. What happens if Kobe had the space of today? I'm not a time machine guy, but I think looking at some of the team dynamics and the team elements that have changed just in the last decade is worthwhile in this conversation. I mean, I've been talking for over an hour. Why not just keep going? Um, the the time machine question or, or the spacing question, I should say, is probably more compelling to me for Wade. I, I don't think Kobe's strengths were necessarily spread, pick, and roll. He could drive and kick and make those passes, um, probably not as well as Harden in the pocket or something like that. But he had that. He had a he had a high basketball IQ, so I think he could learn and pick up more of these things. But I think that benefits Wade's first step more than Kobe. I, I actually, over the years, and especially in, in study and looking back, really came to see Kobe's off-ball value as incredibly underrated. So he was in a system to me that was more well-suited to his skills than necessarily playing with a modern spread pick-and-roll game. L.A. did use, to some degree, uh, stretch stretch big lineups. 2008, Radmanovich played at the four. Phil Jackson always wanted a shooter there. Robert Ory, Derek Fisher was the perfect sort of uh, off-other-guard complement off of Kobe. So in that sense, I think he actually was in really good situations in a number of years in his career. The Tom Janovich situation, one, I don't think he could be, I don't necessarily think he was wired or trained up to be that kind of floor raiser. It was more of what he did in 2006, where just pass the ball to the basket every time. But the flip side is when he's on a good team or has another offensive superstar next to him, uh, ego aside, you know, the personality clash is a potential issue. But ego aside, I think his on-court skills not only fit that very well, but were conducive to some really good high-level offense. And because he's not a defensive liability, you can shore up and build really good all-around teams. And the fact that the early Lakers did that and the late late Lakers did that, to me, uh, is an impressive notch for Kobe. So... Let's conclude here and and package and wrap up what I've just bloviated about for the last hour and change. Uh, number one, scalability, the ability for your game to be portable and travel and play with other teammates. I think Kobe has the edge there over these other two guys. It's probably the differentiating factor for me with Kobe and Dwayne Wade when looking at their best seasons next to each other. Kobe isn't really that ball-dominant gunner in the way we think of those other guys. He's off-ball, he's active, he's dangerous. He often had very quick actions. Like I said, you could catch and put him in a dangerous situation. He'd go into a move and shoot. Uh, Even had the pull-up three-point shooting that was progressive back in the day. An interesting question around the scalability argument is, does Kobe's personality interfere with some of that ability to get along with teammates? Maybe. I'll, I'll leave the off-court stuff to you to weigh that, but I do think it's an interesting, interesting question. Um, Gasol and Odom, they were quiet types, you know? they I think they were perfect personality fits next to Kobe's personality. The big personalities like Shaq, Jimmy Butler, um, 
I don't know, maybe Kevin Garnett. I don't, they, they're, you might see a clash, or you're probably guaranteed to see a clash in those situations. And actually, if you think about it, Kobe and Garnett could have been like a all-time great-level pairing, but a pairing like Kobe and Tim Duncan are probably more likely to last. Okay, second big takeaway from all of this is that the right numbers don't actually make James Harden look better than these other guys anymore. So if you're making that statistical argument, it kind of falls apart when you start to look at the playoffs. Again, Harden still looks great. That's why he's in this conversation. But he's he lags he lags behind the other guys for me. Uh, playoff scoring, 31 points per 75, plus 2%. These are all adjusted for opponent. Uh, you compare that to Wade at his best, he was 30 plus 6. Kobe was 31 plus 4 or 30 plus 5, depending on which three-year stretch you want to look at. Harden does create more offense because he has the ball more. He just constantly has the ball. That's one of those things that takes away, takes stuff off the table for his teammates, and he'd have to give that up if he played with better teammates who could do things. The impact number is all very similar. Harden comes back down to like around that plus six range. Kobe actually in the playoffs gets the highest of this group to plus 6.5. Wade was plus 6.3. That's in my box plus minus model. And the team's offenses. Wade never really played on great playoff offenses. Harden's are good, just under plus four from 2017 to 2019. But Kobe, a little bit more proof in the pudding. Um, and I, you know, having seen all these teams intimately, I kind of like the idea that the 2008 to 2010 Lakers were around plus seven in the playoffs. That's really good and all-time good with Shaq when he was younger, plus nine, plus 10 in those three-year stretches. Um, one of the reasons for this is playoff schemability. Again, Kobe did have a tendency sometimes to overshoot at certain times or his shot selection wasn't great. But in general, if you doubled him, he would create solid stuff for teammates. His playoff creation numbers are very good. Uh, Phil Jackson, as a coach, is on record as saying, you know, in the regular season, Kobe would meander and go rogue. But in the playoffs, he was more likely to stick to the game plan. Wade was, you know, not particularly schemable himself. His first step made him nearly unguardable in key moments against even high-level defenses. He was, in my opinion, tailor-made for certain kinds of like defensive teams that needed a score. And even those 2010 Celtics defenses couldn't contain him. And Harden of the three, I think, is the most schemable, as we talked about, because he lacks those counters, uh, loses some of the extra efficiency he picks up in foul drawing. Utah, for example, last year had seen him the season before. They implemented that extreme Milwaukee scheme uh, and basically, except for one game, he almost didn't get to the line at all. And after the first game, when the Jazz weren't on the same page, the rest of the series, they did a fantastic job implementing that and really held Harden's numbers well below where they were in the regular season. So with that all said, for me, my money, I take Kobe Bryant here as the best prime you know, guy of the bunch. I think he's the best offensive player when all things are considered. I would put Wade maybe just behind him, um, although you could argue Harder, Harden is a better offensive player, and I think Harden's defensive shortcomings are a big deal here. I, I think they keep him you know, almost like a rung below 
uh, some of these really, really high-level seasons that Wade and Kobe authored. So that is it for the first installment of the Great Debate series. Please let me know what you think about this because they are incredibly long and difficult to do. Uh, And so if you aren't feeling them, I won't continue to do them. If you like them, we'll keep the series rolling and look at other great comparisons in NBA history. Remember, uh, please support our sponsors. So it's theathletic.com slash thinkingbasketball, where you can get a free month off that great athletic app subscription, and you will get 50% off the price for the rest of the year. If you're interested in more of this kind of stuff, content stats that were referenced here today, etc., patreon.com slash thinkingbasketball is the place to go check that out. You can sign up. We have a Discord community. We run the all-time drafts. We talk about players, all-time players all the time in this context so you can check that out over there uh and that's it i think that's everything thanks so much for listening all the way to the end and as always i hope that you are having a great day